running out of solutions. Have you been there? Running out of solutions. Have you been there? It's never pleasant to be in a place, especially when circumstances are difficult and weighty, that you feel like you don't know what to do. Sometimes people say things like, I feel stuck. I don't know where to turn. Others might say something like, I feel like I'm in a jam. Not the one that you eat, but the one you can't get out of. It means uh, people who, who, who feel this way, it means they, they're into trouble, some sort of trouble that they feel they cannot escape. Now, it's one thing to feel that at a personal level. Uh, it's much worse when we experience it at a national level. And this morning, I'm not talking about America. Uh, but I want to talk about the people of Israel almost 3,000 years ago. The first king project came to an alarming crisis in the life of Israel. The first king rejected the word of the Lord. And therefore, the Lord rejected him as king. What would happen to God's people now? Who would lead them into battles against their enemies as they had hoped? What will happen to God's people when they find themselves ruled by leaders who reject God? And they... Those leaders don't seem to want to let go of the throne. In God's mercy, God provided a new king. God foretold us in his word that this was his plan. And now in chapter 16, God introduces us to the new king. But the process of this introduction, of introducing his people to a new king, teaches us several lessons about how God establishes his reign even when a rebellious king is still on the throne and he does not want to let go of the throne. Would you open God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we are continuing our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And we'll be reading the whole chapter from verse 1 to uh, uh, verse 23. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. Let's listen and hear God's word for our hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come 
peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Now let our Lord command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with a sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us. In your word. Father, as we hear from you this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that our hearts might be moved, changed, transformed, 
We pray that you would use the proclamation of your word um, to edify your people and to exalt Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. This chapter starts with a reminder that God has rejected King Saul as king over Israel. What will God's people do? We find God's prophet a mourning. We find Samuel still mourning over Saul at the beginning of this chapter. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Samuel? I want you to pause for a moment and imagine all that we've been through so far in this book. Particularly all that Samuel has been through in this book so far. Samuel at this moment could have felt vindicated. He could have pointed his fingers to Israel's elders and tell them, have I not told you that this was going to be a wrong direction? He could have uh, told the people of Israel, I told you and I warned you that this will turn out bad. Samuel could have felt vindicated over how the Israelites rejected him as a prophet. Samuel could have given himself up to gossip against Saul. But we find none of these postures in Samuel at the beginning of this chapter. We find, if anything, we find Samuel in a posture of grieving over Saul. The future of Saul and the future of God's people under a rebellious king is a greater grief for Samuel than seeking to vindicate himself and acting out of resentment. What a, what a, what a lesson for us. But the Lord appears to Samuel and calls him to stop grieving. The reason is because the Lord not only has rejected Saul, but he's now ready to introduce a new king for his people. It's as if the Lord tells Samuel, Samuel, don't feel stuck in your grief. When you don't know where to turn and feel like grief is, is what overwhelms you in this moment, in this, in this season of the life of Israel, with a rejected king, a rebellious king still on the throne, Samuel, how long are you going to, are you going to feel stuck in your grief? God is ready to bring a solution to Samuel feeling stuck in his grief. God is ready to bring, a to bring a solution to Israel's national dilemma. And the solution is a new king. And God called Samuel to go and anoint him. This is a starting point of chapter 16. This new stage brings hope. It teaches us on one side that God's God is not through, and that King Saul's rejection of God does not forfeit God's ability to continue to establish God's kingship and reign through a king after God's own heart. Notice God's instruction to Samuel in verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
Who is God providing a king for? You might say, for Israel. They're the ones who have a bad king on the throne. They're the ones who need it. But notice how, how the text tells us God is providing a king for himself. This king is chosen to carry God's agenda for his people. God sets him up for himself first and foremost. In setting up a new king for himself, God is saying that he is not giving up his plans to set his reign and his kingship over his people through this new king who really will be God's representative first and foremost. The introduction of this new king is not just the introduction of a new king. He's not just any king. He's not just the second king in the history of kings. Oh no, dear friends, this is not just any of the kings of Israel. This is going to be King David. With this king, if we read the, the rest of the, of the story of, of 1 and 2 Samuel, with this king, God will end up making a covenant by which his dynasty will last forever. To this king, God was going to promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his descendants will sit on the throne and his kingdom and his throne will be established forever. What a contrast between Saul and his dynasty. Saul lost the right to have a lasting dynasty and Saul lost the right to continue to be the legitimate king over God's people. And here now, God is about to introduce us to a new king. But he's not just any king. He's going to be the king whose dynasty and whose descendant will remain on the throne forever. This means that the introduction to a new king is not just a transition between normal kings, between normal dynasties. No, this is a transition between a dynasty that has been rejected and a dynasty whose throne will endure forever. And listen how one of the descendants of David described himself in the last book of the Bible, in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Jesus Christ, as he concludes the book of Revelation, he describes himself in this way, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. It is through King David that God will build a lineage from which the incarnation of Jesus Christ will come. And through this lineage of Jesus Christ, Christ will bring a kingdom with no end. So the story of the rise of King David is a change from a dynasty and a king who forfeited his right to dominion because he defied the word of God and, and moving to a king whose dynasty will be established forever. This is a 
watershed moment in the history of God's redemption for his people. And when this new king is actually identified and introduced to us, we come to realize that God's timetable and choice is different than our expectations. You know, from verse 1, when God introduces to Samuel the news that he's bringing about a new king and he wants Samuel to go and anoint him, all this could have been shrunk down, shortened, and go straight to verse 13 when, when Samuel anoints David. But the story takes us through some detours of how this anointing takes place, of how God introduces the new king. And the way God introduces the new king tells us some important details about God's way to establish kingship among his people, even when the rebellious king refuses to let the throne go. The king God introduces has three characteristics in this story. His rise to kingship is veiled at first. That's the first characteristic. His rise to kingship is veiled at first. Second, this king that God introduces, he defies human expectations. He defies human expectations. And thirdly, he confronts spiritual oppression. He confronts spiritual oppression. Let's look at these three characteristics of how God introduces his anointed king. Number one, the anointed king is veiled at first. When Samuel gets a message from God and the instructions to go and anoint another king, it becomes apparent that the the news of this new king will not be welcomed news for everyone. Samuel is afraid for his life at the hand of King Saul. Verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. This gives us a clue that Saul was not planning to let go of the kingdom. And more so, he was open to kill any contenders to his throne. In the previous chapter, Saul spared King Agag, whom God commanded Saul to kill. But now, Saul is perceived as being willing to kill Samuel, God's prophet. Saul is unwilling to let go of the throne. He will try to keep it at all costs, even if it means killing God's messengers. Because of Saul's opposition, the Lord instructs Samuel to go to Bethlehem and bring a sacrifice. And during that process of bringing a sacrifice, the Lord would show Samuel whom to anoint. So Samuel goes, and Samuel's mere appearance at the outskirts of Bethlehem caused the elders of Bethlehem to come out and be alarmed and afraid. They're coming trembling to Samuel and asking him, are you coming peaceably? Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Now, why would the elders of Bethlehem tremble at the mere sight of Samuel? Did Saul perhaps spread news among his people that Samuel is now troubled? Or did they hear of the parting of ways between Samuel and Saul and were afraid that Samuel would initiate trouble from Saul if Saul hears about it? 
it's, it's unclear exactly what caused him trouble. Yeah, but Samuel assures him that he comes peaceably. Verse 5, Samuel says, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, at this moment, some wonder, is this deception on Samuel's part? Well, Samuel did exactly what the Lord commanded him to do. This is not a plan to deceive, but a plan to veil the anointing of the new king, just as God commanded Samuel to do. The elders of Bethlehem had no idea that on that peaceable trip to Bethlehem, Samuel was tasked to anoint God's new king. It was because Saul's unwillingness to let go of the throne that God chose to veil the anointing of the new king. The veiled nature of introducing God's new king will run through big parts of the rest of 1 Samuel. The rebellious king will not stand the thought that a new, a better king is coming to take his throne. Saul will seek to protect his throne at any cost. And the story of Saul becomes really the story of Israel. The story of Saul becomes a story of all humanity. The fact that God introduces his new king, his better king in this veiled way, gives us a clue that God's reign among his people comes in ways that are not going to be apparent to all. This pattern about God's king will be used again in other parts of the scripture. A king who comes veiled. A greater king. Listen to the words of, of John 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Why not? John goes on to say, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, friends, we too, like Saul, want to hold on to, to the thrones of our own lives, to the reign of our lives. We want to hold on to that at all costs. Yet God, in his goodness, brings his king into our world, even when we are unwilling to let go of the reign. And, if, and God brings his king into our world, even if the world does not see him with their physical eyes. Just because Jesus is coming as a king doesn't mean everyone will see him as a king. And just because we don't see him with our physical eyes does not mean that God's king has not come yet. Uh, yesterday I was talking with a man who used to grow up in church and said that he's now become perhaps an atheist or someone who no longer believes. I said, why? What happened? And he said, well, because we, no longer, we, can, no, we can no longer prove uh, the truths and the claims of the Bible as being scientifically true. We cannot repeat those events in the Bible. Therefore, how can we believe them? Friends, it's easy for us to consider, the, to evaluate reality only by what we can see with our physical eyes. And here is, is God introducing his king. 
And he's doing it in a veiled way because the people are already set on a posture of not willing, not be willing to receive the one who would come and take reign over them. It is possible, friends, that our heart's rejection of God's word makes us and our perceptions to be veiled so that we can't see all that God is doing. When we operate with heart postures that are set on rejecting what God wants to say to us, don't be surprised if God's plans are veiled from our eyes. Uh, The hope we take from this first point, though, is that even when the wrong man is on the throne, God advances his reign even with a veiled king. God never runs out of solutions. God is not stuck. He never gets stuck like us. The question is if we have eyes to see what the Lord advances. Point number two, the anointed king defies human expectations. The anointed king defies human expectations. When Samuel invites the elders to join him to the sacrifice, he invites Jesse and his sons. The Lord promised to show Samuel who it is that the Lord has chosen as a king from among Jesse's sons. But in this process, we have two surprises. We have two surprises. The first surprise is that Samuel's expectations fall short. The author tells us about Samuel's impressions before he heard from the Lord. Verse 6, when they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This was Samuel's assessment. And notice the lesson the Lord teaches him. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here the Lord has to correct Samuel's expectations and assessment. What a great lesson the Lord is teaching Samuel in this moment. I think the Lord might be teaching us the same lesson, some of us this morning, if we have not learned it. The lesson is the Lord looks not at the appearances. The Lord looks not at what man looks. The Lord looks at the heart. We may evaluate people based on how they appear to us, how they perform outwardly, outwardly, but the Lord looks at something else. He evaluates people based on what happens in the heart. The Lord can see what man cannot see. Before God, what matters most is not outward appearance, but a heart that is inclined and set on the Lord. Friends, I wonder if, if we might fall for the same trap as, as Samuel fell, to be impressed with mere appearances, either in ourselves or in others. This principle is, by the way, valid in all aspects of the Christian life. Don't carry your life uh, only by concern, being concerned for what happens on the outside, what happens in the visible realm. If God sees a heart, then what is in the heart is known by the Lord. Consider the reality. If you harbor bitterness or anger, 
towards someone. You may manage to keep that bitterness and anger controlled, not shown, but the Lord knows it. The principle is true in, in any other aspect of our lives. Young adults, single adults, if you're concerned and, and looking and waiting uh, to meet that significant other, are you looking just for what is visible and outwardly manifested? Or are you concerned for what might be going on in someone's heart? This principle is also valid in how churches think of looking for leaders. It's not uncommon when I hear a church looking for a pastor, for a senior pastor, uh, to hear that among their qualifications, they have certain expectations of, of training credentials. I'm saddened when I hear of churches who are searching for pastors and prefer to have someone with a PhD. Training is important, don't get me wrong. But external criteria can never compensate for what might be lacking in the heart. If we're looking only for what strikes the eye, oh friends, we're in it for a big surprise. God is looking to evaluate the heart. And at the heart of the Christian message is actually that God changes us, not merely on the outward dimension, but God changes us on the inside, first and foremost. Part of the gospel message is that, that the heart is corrupted by sin. It's not merely that we act sinfully in our outward, external behavior. It's not merely that we act rebelliously on the outside. It's that our hearts are corrupted by sin. And part of the, the, the great news of the gospel message, of the message of Christianity, is that faith in Jesus Christ Trusting Jesus Christ affects the heart. God begins a renewal with the heart. Oh, friends, God is interested first and foremost in the heart. The, the process that, that Samuel went through here, seeing Eliab, and, and, and Samuel being impressed by Eliab's appearance and by his tallness, reminds us that Samuel, even the prophet of the Lord, can be misguided in his expectations. Israel does not need another Saul-like king. They do not need Saul version 2, just a better version of that. They need a king whose heart is set on the Lord. That is the number one criterion for selecting a king for God's people. By this time, Samuel had walked with the Lord for decades. At this point, Samuel is a, we might call him, a retired prophet. He has known the Lord very closely. And yet, even Samuel, with so much prophetic experience, can fall for the trap of assessing people on human expectations and past experiences. And friends, this is a challenging part for us to consider. Even Samuel looks as, at, at Jesse's first son as, and is impressed so impressed with him that he's so certain of the, of the fittedness of this candidate as a king that he says, surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Friends, don't count past experiences 
or human perceptions as sufficient to assess God's plans. I love how one, one commentator said, sometimes Yahweh must save us from our saviors, our self-chosen solutions to kingdom needs and personal dilemmas. And how often he has to save us from our own self-selected saviors. Friends, one of the reasons I'm so glad that we as a church here have a plurality of elders and pastors is because I need other pastors in this congregation to challenge me in my own impressions. I can err in thinking through how to assess solutions and, and various challenges or, or various things and decisions in the life of our congregation. I too can be wrong. And I praise God that the Lord has raised up other pastors who are now assisted also by, by fellow deacons so that the, the pastoral care of this church is not based only in one person. But let me go a, a step further. We, the pastors of the church, can also be wrong in our impressions together. And the Lord, when that happens, the Lord calls you, the congregation, to keep us accountable according to God's word. Because any of us can fall for the trap of making a decision based on human appearances or on past experiences. And we need to be reminded. We need to be challenged by the Lord. I pray that one of the greatest blessings that we can have in this church and any church can have is to be led by pastors and assisted by deacons who lead and serve God's people not based on human impressions or expectations, but based on God's expectations and based on God's word. God's new king defies human expectations. It defied even Samuel's expectations. But there's another surprise here. It's not only Samuel's expectations that have been defied. After the Lord corrected Samuel and guided him in evaluating Jesse's seven sons, Samuel told Jesse that none of the seven sons have been chosen by the Lord. So Samuel asks in verse 7, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. God's new king defied not merely Samuel's expectations, but even Jesse's expectations. Jesse did not even bother to invite his youngest son to the party. In Jesse's mind, the smallest son doesn't need to be at this sacrificial meal. Keeping the sheep were more important than participating at a sacrificial meal. And David was not invited to the party at first. And he was his dad who neglected or chose not to invite him. He was left out. And this is the one the Lord chose. Literally, the Lord chose him from the sheep, from among the sheep. Friends, through this small detail, the Lord shows us that the king he's choosing for his people 
is a choice that no one would have considered, not even Jesse, the boy's father. God truly defies human expectations. Don't rely on your expectations to encounter God's king on your terms. When you, re- you and I rely on our human expectations for encountering God's anointed king, we will be missing it big time. Or we'll be in it for a big surprise. When Jesus came to his own people, he often was not received because he did not conform with what people expected. And the greatest misexpectation was a suffering Messiah, a crucified Messiah, who would perceive that God would bring his king born in a stable outside of Bethlehem and then would die on a cross, cursed as if cursed by God, outside of Jerusalem. How often, my friends, do you try to measure God and his ways on the grid of your expectations? How often do you assume that God's solutions must match up with your grid of what works now or what has worked in the past? Is it possible that God wants to advance his reign in our lives by defying our expectations and preconceived notions? Saul defied God's word because he made decisions based on what people expected him to make. And he was removed as a king. Now in his place, God raises a new king, and in doing so, God defies all human expectations. And when Jesse's youngest son arrives, the Lord confirms to Samuel, he is it. He's the one I'm choosing. So Samuel anoints David in the presence of his brothers. And we're told in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God's anointed king depended not upon his skills, not on his profile, not on his birth sequence in the family. Especially in a Jewish tradition that valued and gave the, the prominence of the inheritance of the firstborn, God is choosing the lastborn in the family to give the inheritance and the kingship. Oh, friends, God is giving David not only the dominion, he's giving him the spirit, so that through his spirit, God is going to work through this veiled king. But this brings us to point number three. The story's not over. The anointed king confronts spiritual oppression. After David is anointed king, the author tells us an important role David will play in the life of King Saul. David, his first event described for us, David will exert control over Saul's spiritual oppression. That spiritual oppression that was brought about because of Saul's disobedience against the Lord And the unfolding of this episode, of this story, has some helpful details for us. It's noteworthy that Saul, in the story, is not able to realize his problem, nor its source. Did you notice that in verse 15, it's the servants of Saul who diagnose the problem. He's so blinded by what's going on that he needs his servants to tell him the problem. And it's the servants who suggest a solution. It's the servants who suggest that Saul should consider uh, bringing someone who plays a liar to keep the harmful spirit away from him. 
And when Saul agrees to their solution in verse 18, it's one of his servants who recommends to Saul a candidate. And of all the men, of all the candidates in, in Israel, this one servant brings one recommendation and brings the resume of this one candidate. It's a candidate from the sons of Jesse. And of all the sons of Jesse, the one that makes the recommendation is David. And listen to the resume, verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. But listen to the last one. And the Lord is with him. Of all the qualifications, the last one is the weightiest. And that is that the Lord is with him. This is what King Saul lacked. Because the Spirit of God departed from Saul. And this is what the Lord has done to, say, to, to, to David when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David on the day of, of his anointing. Friends, of all the qualifications we can build up for ourselves, the one that matters the most is to hear, the Lord is with us. Parents, I'd like to speak to you for a moment. All of us want to be good parents. want to make sure that our children are uh, growing well, exposed to good training, build up good skills, good profile, being ready to be adults in society when they grow up. But what are the qualities you want to see in your kids most? Is it a good GPA? Is it a great variety of extracurricular activities? Playing an instrument? Even playing the lyre, perhaps. Um, a good presence? Someone who has good manners? Prudence in speech? Someone who speaks well, presents himself well? Now, each of these are good qualifications. Each of these are good things to desire to see in our children. Oh, friends, but if we achieve these qualifications but miss to introduce our children to the Lord or miss to desire to see the Lord as present in the lives of our children, oh, friends, it doesn't matter how long the list of qualifications is. It's sad when we make choices that seem to cultivate more the growth of these other qualifications rather than the cultivating of the, of the presence of the Lord and the focus on the Lord with our children. It's sad to see how pursuing all the other qualities is often done at the expense of cultivating God's presence with us. And friends, we live in a society that's going to make it, make it more and more difficult for parents to prioritize and emphasize um, cultivating the presence of God with our children. Extracurricular activities will creep up on us on Sundays in ways that we now would prefer or have to choose between bringing children to a sporting event on a Sunday or taking them to church. It's going to get worse and worse. This is part of the reality that we're living in. So I want to encourage our parents to consider of all the qualities that we want to see in our children grow 
the one that we should feel most concerned about and cultivate is the presence of the Lord. Now, we cannot cause that to happen. I get it. The only the Spirit of God can bring His presence to be and lodge in the hearts of our children. But dear friends, I pray that we as parents might see this qualification as being the weightiest and pray for it. David's reputation has a number of great things going for him. People can brag about David for all these qualifications, but none is, none is weightier as this last one, cultivating the presence of the Lord with us. I wonder if that is what you're known for. I wonder if that is what you're known for, that the Lord is with him, that the Lord is with her. When Saul hears this great list of qualifications about David, Saul decides to recruit David. But as far as Saul is concerned, notice how he called for David. Look at verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. As far as Saul is concerned, all he thought he's getting is a shepherd boy who plays the lyre well and can help him with his spiritual oppression. But Saul had no idea that before Saul recruited David to be his servant, the Lord had recruited David to be his king. Saul had no idea that besides all the qualifications that David had, David was God's anointed king that God has chosen to reign over his people. And the first assignment the Lord gives David even before the assignment of Goliath, the first assignment the Lord gives David is that in his veiled form, as a veiled king, David would serve to confront and to bring some temporal deliverance to the king who rejected God, to the king who was oppressed by the Lord at God's design. This king will now be at the mercy of God's true king. And the story ends on the following note in verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Here is King Saul on the throne, exercising illegitimate dominion over his people. He's no longer God's king for his people. But he needs, even though on the throne, outwardly he is the king. Visibly he is the king in the eyes of all Israel. But this king needs a shepherd boy who can stir off the harmful spirits sent by the Lord. Friends, God's new anointed king serve as the means of bringing deliverance from spiritual oppression to the rejected king. Saul was trying to hold on to his throne with all his might, regardless of the cost. But in reality, he can't keep himself protected. He's at the mercy of God's new king. And what makes David's first service as anointed king so special is that David is called to exert this service towards, towards the one who has rejected God. He's called to exert this service towards the one who eventually will turn against him and seek to kill him. Friends, I wonder if it's possible for us to realize that the Lord may be calling his people as a royal priesthood 
to serve the those who have rejected him, to come to the needs of those who eventually will persecute his people. Is it possible that the Lord is calling us to serve even in veiled ways, in ways that the world will not understand us or really realize our task? Is it possible that the Lord would call us to serve those who have rejected him and even those who will reject us? David was the anointed king of Israel, but the journey to the throne was a long one. One that would eventually take David through the valleys of suffering and the risk of his life. But nevertheless, David starts that journey through the base of serving the very king he came to replace, seeking his good, seeking his well-being, even if that king would not return the favor in the long run. Oh, friends, consider that David is a prototype for the descendant promised to David, for King Jesus. When King Jesus came, he came veiled as a king. He came to serve the very ones who would reject him, the very ones who would effectively be successful at crucifying him. And he came to bring deliverance from spiritual oppression. Oh, friends, when we feel stuck and hopeless, remember that God is never stuck. He brought this king to advance God's plans for his people, even if his people did not see it at first. The rise of this king is veiled. He defies human expectations. He confronts spiritual oppression, even for the ones who eventually will kill him. Friends, if you don't know this King Jesus, I want to encourage you to turn to him. If you have heard of him, if you have trusted in him in the past, but have been distracted by what dazzles the sight, by what lures the visible appearances I want to call on you today. Return back to him. Consider the way the Lord works. Trust him. The timing when this king will be culminated on the throne may be a while in a visible form. For the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, David never gets to be on a physical throne. Samuel dies before the king he anointed will actually take the throne in a visible manifestation. Consider how many of the certainties of what Samuel did on this day, in this chapter, became hopes of an ultimate fulfillment. Oh, friends, this is God's pattern. The Lord, the King, has come already among us. But his consummation of his kingdom is not yet fully here. We're looking for him to come. Until that day comes, let's trust this God who brings a king who is veiled, who defies human expectations, and who confronts spiritual oppression. He did it. He will do it again. Let's pray.